Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D. Just us two this week, but plenty to talk about. We've got some stuff going on in the UK macroeconomic environment and a bunch of companies that we think are interesting that all have said interesting things lately. So, Steve, with me this week. How are you, Steve? How's your week been? Well, you got to me quicker than I thought you were going to get to me then. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it's okay. Skids on uh, a bit, this, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll leave that as like one of those cold start things. Um, cool. <laughs> but yeah, uh, not not too bad, Steve. Uh, really, really busy week for me because we've got a couple of uh, couple of folks off work. So um, like I said, I was driving around the world, it seemed, and you text me and said, is this a buying opportunity for Adkin? And I was like, oh, I, I need to pull over and find out. I just <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a chance to look. And uh, I mean, we will go over that uh, later and, and what I, uh, I feel about it. But um, uh, yeah, really, really busy. Bad week for, for me in the stocks, Steve. I think I've, uh, I, I was about, I think I'm about three and a half K down on the week, which is, is quite a bit. I've actually deployed all of my cash. So I am uh, 100% invested now, Steve. And then just to cap it off today, Steve, the Asda guy decided to swap um, a hard cheese that you grate on your pasta for brie, which, you know, I'd love going to love to send him a video of me trying to grate some brie onto some pasta. I think that'll go down incredibly. Maybe if I freeze it first, Steve, that might actually work. But how's your week been? My week's been all right, Steve. I did find some hard cheese in the fridge yesterday. So as as some people will know, Steve and I have occasionally been known to get Gusto boxes uh, before or now. And they sometimes send you these uh, recipes if you order them that require grated Italian cheese is basically what they call it. I think it's called something like Spinoro, what they what they actually send. It's not a Grana Padano or any name that I've heard of, but it's something like Spinoro. But the approach I generally tend to take is... Um, Oh, fucking hell. You can hear that, can't you? It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, but the approach I generally tend to take uh, is to, if we already have like a block of Italian cheese, we'll tend to use that before we go opening the stuff in the sachet because I think it probably has a shelf life that will, basically it will expire after I do, uh, is is my rough thought on it. We didn't have one recently, so I've been chucking a load of that into a spag pot. And then we ran out, and it turns out, yeah, no, you can grate things like cheddar into it perfectly well as well. I don't know why brie wouldn't go in a... uh, What are you putting it in, Steve, this hard cheese that you're after? I think it's going in cannelloni, Steve, if off the top of my head. I think that's what I was planning to make this week. Would Would that not melt over the top? You could melt brie onto cannelloni, couldn't you? Yeah, but we've got that sort of, like, nagging doubt in the head that I'm, we're not sure if pregnant people are allowed free. I'm sure if we cook it, it's fine. But I'm pretty certain always... you do have to cook it, yeah. yeah you better make sure you cook it properly. And there is that, yeah, there's that risk that you, you, you know, when you're just topping something and you want it just to sort of melt down a little bit, you don't always put it in the oven for the full time, do you? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even like brie to be to be Britain, Britain honest with you, Steve. <laughs> now so, uh, we begin to arrive. Uh, yeah. Now we start to get to French. what the issue is. <laughs> no, um... So actually, I haven't even taken it. I, I didn't even take it. I left it in the in the in the barrow for Asda to put back on the shelves. That is a pity. And there goes our potential midweek segment of watching Steve try to grate a brie. Um, I reckon if you'd like to watch either of us trying to grate a brie, uh, let us know, and we'll come up with some sort of video thing for you. Or if I'm you happy have, to a, have tip, a if you hmm. have a tip for grating brie, I'm sure our distinguished audience uh, I, have I a think, tip for. Yeah, I think they do nothing else, do they, other than spend most of the day grating brie into, uh, well, whatever it is they can think to grate brie into, cannelloni or uh, spagbol or, or whatever. It feels like one of those maniacal things that you'd get involved in when the market is going as badly as it is at the moment, isn't it, Steve? You just think, like, I'm going to distract myself, I'm going to figure out a way to grate brie. feels like a thing you spend a lot of time thinking about when you haven't got much else of a show, really. But um, well, my week's Just 55 right. minutes more to go, Steve, yeah. and then we can wrap it up. 
what else can you grate, Steve? Have you ever tried grating oranges? No. Uh, <laughs> we won't get into that. Um, uh, my week's been all right. My stock market week hasn't been very good. I don't think anyone's has. In fact, my stock market fortnight hasn't been that good, to be honest. I still don't believe that anyone's has. I got a dividend from Apple. I was trying to work out what to do with it. And then I realized it was about nine quid. And I thought, uh, what does it matter? I'll leave it. I'll leave it accumulating interest. 3P coming my way this time. That does mean, of course, them being fully invested now, Steve, you will have to live without much in the way of 212 interest here. I wasn't anyway because it was all in um, CSH2, oh. but I do get the daily share lending uh, money in my other account, so mm-hmm. I get a notification every day to let me know that they've paid me a penny for share lending, and it is literally a penny as well. I, one day I got 3p, and I, I, it's like, you know, the sort of thing, you think, oh, I wonder what I wonder what else has been lent out, and then you start to look and you think, no, I shouldn't wonder because I, I'm waste, literally wasting my time trying to find out what it was. Yeah, uh, we're trying to work out basically which of your stocks someone wants to short, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, I don't think I have anything worth shorting. I don't think I have anything worth really doing anything at all. But um, most of my stuff, in fact, nearly all of my stuff is contained in my ICE. uh, So I don't think share lending happens from there anyway, right? No, no, no share lending from an ISA at all. So, but I, you know, I think, um, I think it's one of those things that I think would be a nice feature to add on to the ISA. I don't really see a reason why. I mean, I understand the risks attached to it, but it's not, um, it's not something I think that really degrades the quality, you know, quality of an ISA or the the, the standing of an ISA to have your shares lent out. I think, especially when your portfolio gets a bit bit bigger, um, that little push you get from share lending is is quite a nice thing to have. I wonder whether it would be legal. Uh, and the reason I wonder about that is because ISIS do sometimes have funny regulations attached to them as well. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it's, uh, not, it's not legal. No, <laughs> no, if they can't be lent, they have to. They basically have to sit there. But what I was saying is I, I, don't, I mm-hmm. don't really understand the reasons yeah, for that. Yeah, sure. Okay, so that, yeah, that would be better if it were allowed, I think. I'm not sure... I'm not sure I see much of a reason for that either, but I also didn't see the reason to worry about the fractional shares thing that we talked about not that long ago in people's ices. That's gone, hasn't it? That the news from that has just disappeared. Uh, pretty much. That yeah, either it didn't happen or hasn't happened. I, I suppose I should say hasn't happened yet. I mean, the, the way I think about this is okay. It, it doesn't meet ISA kind of regulations. Then whatever they might be. Is that the thing that people want to uh, focus their attention on here? Um, Probably not until it becomes a big issue. And that's fine. I'm all right with the idea people have priorities and that they want to pursue the most important thing. And that might not be this right now, but might be in the future. I'm not sure how it becomes a big issue, uh, to be honest, with the the idea that, okay, so what you have is something that's kind of a synthetic product um, in in an ISA, but it can't be kind of lost in the same way or various other things like that. So I... I'm not sure I see this ever becoming enough of an issue to really attract kind of uh, regulator attention, even if it is strictly not allowed. Um, We might come back to this theme of attracting regulator attention in a bit, I guess. You've got Tencent on your um, uh, dock for looking at for this week. I've been watching The 100, though, uh, Steve. I've been distracting myself from the fact that my portfolio isn't going anywhere and I can't work out what to do with nine quid's worth of Apple dividend. Um, The test series is now finished, pretty much. The 100 took over almost immediately, actually, pretty much on the start of August. Uh, The two were kind of overlapping with with one another. We were chatting beforehand, and, and despite your enthusiasm for cricket, or maybe because of your enthusiasm for cricket, this isn't really something that grabs your attention. No, it's all... Because I'm, I'm quite a, a decent-sized boxing fan as well, Steve. So I um I, I sort of see the 100 in the same sort of way that I saw. I don't know if you're into boxing, Steve, but the Prize Fighter series, where uh, basically it was like three three-minute rounds, um, and you had three, if to win, you had to have three fights on the night. Um, you know, you had the quarters, semis, and and, and final. Mm-hmm. Um. And and it was just kind of like a commercialization of of um crick, uh, of, of boxing, so it was like quick fire boxing. Do you know what I mean? For people with short attention spans. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, twenty twenty uh, came uh, came around, and I thought, oh, this is that. Do you know what I mean? And, and actually, I, I do quite enjoy twenty twenty. I think it is. Well, I mean, coming from playing club cricket, that's pretty much what you play on a weekday, isn't it? A twenty twenty mm-hmm. or or twelve eights or whatever. Yeah. Um. So that that you know, it is quite a, a, an interesting thing for me. But I just think the hundred is just a step too far for me. Um, I prefer Test cricket. I've always preferred Test cricket uh, and county championship cricket. I really not into one day cricket that much unless there's some kind of big tournament on. Uh, twenty twenty, I can go and watch, but I wouldn't choose to watch it on TV. And the hundred, Steve, I've actually only ever watched one game. Uh, in in real life or on the telly. 
on telly. I've never wow. been to a hundred game. In fact, I wouldn't even be able to tell you many of the franchise teams in it. I, I know there's the Northern something or the Northern Power House or something. That's you. A, That's yeah, your team. That's like yes, the Headingley Leeds-ish team, right? Yes, and there's the Trent Rockets. Mm-hmm. I hate those. Outside, outside of that, couldn't tell you. So uh, my team for this is the Birmingham Phoenix. I, by the way, went to one uh, like in-person 100 game. I've watched several more on the telly. I'm a big fan. Um, I went to one and I fell asleep in it, which was not ideal. Uh, but I was absolutely steaming at the time because it was on my stag do and we were roughly towards the end of the uh, evening. And I was very much struggling. To, and the main thing I remember is my mate next to me um, just giving me a nudge every time Mexican Wave was coming round. But it was actually a pretty good uh, game, I think. It was Southern Brave against Northern Superchargers. Uh, not Northern Superchargers, Trent Rockets in the Eliminator last year. Uh, good game. People bowl at the speed of light in that tournament from what I can see. Uh, and I've been enjoying it this year as well. It's nice to have, I like having cricket on the telly um, that I can get at and see and so on. And Alistair, my little one, has really taken to throwing, considering he's won. And that's not a thing that usually happens yet. But he is very much enjoying throwing. I He watched me bowl in the garden and thought it was the funniest thing he's ever seen. Uh, but yeah, your team is the Northern Superchargers, Steve. Uh, you should be into these. Do you know who their captain is? Uh, go on, surprise me. I will surprise you. It's Wayne Parnell. You were never going to guess that. <laughs> no, never, no. Um, who was a promising 17-year-old from South Africa and is now uh, a cash-hungry 30-something-year-old, I think, from South Africa. Fair mm. play to him. Uh, yeah, Ben Stokes in your team, I think, if he if he actually plays, which I'm not sure he does. And I think Harry Brook is there. And, and yeah, I've seen, Brooke, I've seen Brook's name on the, on the score sheet. I think that's kind of the most disappointing thing about the 100 for me, to be honest, because when we got into all this sort of franchisey stuff, I thought it might be nice to have a nice mix up of all the basically all the counties and um, find people who normally play together, playing against each other. And you might get Mm. some even strength kind of teams because I don't know who's going to win the county championship in any given year, but I know that Lancashire will be strong and Warwickshire will be strong and Surrey will be strong and Derbyshire will not and North Ants will struggle and Leicester will probably be the worst team in it. Um, and, and all of Yorkshire's players won't be there because they'll be playing for England <laughs> yep uh, quite a few sorries too actually even though they don't really deserve to be but uh, there's that kind of thing will happen every year and I thought okay let's let's mix it all up and scramble it round a bit and then and then we'll have a kind of draft order and people can can get at least what they perceive to be roughly even teams and some will come out better than others and so on but that's the way these things work it'd be nice to have some sort of unpredictability and it's really not uh, these things are basically just whatever them and their next door county is. So uh, yeah. that seems to kind of be quite annoying to me, to be honest. They should have picked it in school field ro- in rules. They've yeah. got them all on to like, the, get the oval, book the oval, get yeah. all the players out, get your captain from each team. And he should have mm-hmm. picked them one by one until we saw who all the cricketers thought was the worst cricketer. Yeah. Well, do you know who one of the worst cricketers is, at least in this format, apparently? So there was some, there was some people who were drafted. You can draft people into, like, salary brackets, and as you work down, they get paid less. Uh, one person who got drafted into a wild card, which I'm not entirely sure means he gets paid anything at all very much, is Ollie Robinson. Uh, England seamer Ollie Robinson. Um, I say England seamer. I think he's as surprised about that as anybody else is. But mm. uh, he is, yeah, uh, he's a wild card for somebody. Might be your lot, actually. I don't know an awful lot about Ollie Robinson. He's one of those people I'm always perpetually surprised is in any team. Yep. Well, Gus Atkinson is now in the England team, so he's the new Ollie Robinson. Mm. Uh, he's bowls for Surrey, and as far as I can tell, his main qualification appears to be that he plays for Surrey. But uh, we've used up, I think, probably enough time to squeeze us through to an hour. Steve, should we get on with some actual stuff from this show? Let's do it. What do you want to start with? Good question. We didn't talk about what order we were going to talk about these things in, but let's start with UK macroeconomic news and stuff, shall we? So there's been a recent inflation report that came in at 6.8%. That was down from 7.9% before. So inflation is going in the right way. And the markets didn't like it very much. The reason they didn't like it very much, I think, is because it was supposed to be lower than 6.8%. I, I don't know, down 1% at a time, very roughly, 79 to 6.8%. That, that seemed kind of all right for me. Um, but no, it's not coming down as fast as people thought. And Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England, the Bank of England, sorry, is complaining, uh, and he is blaming it largely on wage is going up and wage growth and that kind of thing. Um, he's kind of right in that there has been some fairly significant wage growth. The last uh, measure of wage increase year over year had regular uh, wages up seven point eight percent, and total wages, so this includes bonuses as well as regular stuff, up eight point two percent. 
which is outpacing inflation at the moment, albeit it's very tight if you look at the regular stuff and back one month, 7.8 versus 7.9. But his point is that, look, inflation is a matter of too much money chasing too little in the way of goods and services. People are producing the same thing and have loads more money. So it's kind of hard for me to do anything about this inflation thing while the, the imbalance of supply and demand in the uh, money uh, market basically is is coming uh, is getting worse on the uh, supply side in terms of wages. That I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and we'll come back to that in a second. But Rishi Sunak decided to say something as well. It's kind of rare that he says too much out of line, but he's decided that Look, trade unions are never going to vote for me anyway. He's probably right about that point. Trade unions are never going to vote for me or tell their members to vote for me or anyone who thinks anything at all about trade union is probably never voting for me. So let's wind them up a bit more. Um, His idea, he said, look, pay rises are good and I like pay rises for people, but only when they're producing more stuff. Um, Not just pay rises because pay rises because it's now this year and last year was last year. Uh, if you're producing more stuff, then yeah, you should uh, be getting a pay rise, but people should be responsible and kind of limit it to that. You would like to see productive growth, uh, but only pay rises when we see productive growth. Um, Steve, your thoughts on any of this? I have some in a bit, but I'll I'll tell you mine in a moment. It, it It's difficult, isn't it? Because inflation well wages have to go up because the cost of everything has gone up so it's like kind of what do you what 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 do you want do you want everybody to sit in poverty while they can't afford, they can't afford the, the food and what have you especially with um appreciate gas prices are coming down but that cost there which was we were told was a, a one-off uh, extraordinary cost that we just had to sort of grin and bear and you know and whatever roll up our sleeves and what have you well that's just been replaced with some other costs now so it's not been a one-off cost it's just been a, a prolonged to the pocket but at least you're not paying it on gas steve you're paying it on your fruit and veg so i don't know steve it's really strange because look speaking as uh as somebody who's never voted tory in my life it is interesting to see the the policies of other countries, uh, which have taken a, a really left leaning stance towards uh, inflation, uh, and their rates are coming down a lot. We're, t- we're talking about Spain in particular here, so their CPI number has edged higher, Steve, uh, last month. It actually edged from one point nine percent to two point three percent. So their numbers you would you would absolutely die for, but they have taken a very very different approach. They've taxed companies that had higher profits. Um, and they have done a proper cap on energy prices that kept it affordable for their people. So they're two fairly left-leaning policies, or, or we would perceive them as fairly left-leaning policies, and yet their inflation is a hell of a lot lower than us. Now, you might say that's artificially lower because there's some government borrowing uh, going on there to set the energy prices lower, but on the same vein, they are taxing extraordinary profits to try and cover that debt. So that's interesting that, uh, you know, the free market that was supposed to love has failed us essentially, and the people who uh, like the free market when it's doing the things that they want it to do, and don't like the the free market when it's not doing things they want it to do, that policy seems to have failed us. Steve, what what are your takes on it? I, I I'm I, I don't know. I, I can't get excited about any of the news coming out of the UK at the moment. The first point you made seems to me to be exactly the right one, Rishi Sunak. Let's start there for the moment, then. So. He wants it to be the case that wages go up in line with what people produce. And I would say that was fair enough. Uh, If you produce more, you should make more if there was no inflation. Um, So but there is inflation and therefore I don't uh, think that's right. What I tend to think here is that, look, if you produce the same stuff, but inflation is, let's say, 7.9 percent, taking the last uh, kind of reading from a month ago, well, look, the value of the thing that you're producing is 7.9% higher. Uh, so you're the person that's producing it. You should have a claim on, I don't know, 7%, 7.9% more stuff uh, because the value of what you produce has gone up. If it were the case that there were no inflation, so the value of what you produce stays flat, then I would say, yeah, your earnings should go up. It requires you to produce more stuff, basically. The value of what you produce only goes up if you make more of it, if it stays flat. If it's deflationary, well, uh, that becomes a much harder question. But... Uh, I'm okay with the idea that, look, I don't want to pay people just for more just for doing the same thing uh, all over the place. But uh, I also kind of or not doing the same thing, you're doing the same thing in the same way, let's say, so no better for no additional kind of value output. But in fact, inflation means that there is just a natural value increase output coming up anyway. Uh, So I sort of think that's kind of missing the point with respect to inflation and wanting to tackle it from that end is tricky. I think Andrew Bailey is kind of right that there will be um, 
I don't know if complaining about it is the right way to go, but there will be a natural tailwind for inflation with wage rises increasing. Uh, that will mean it's harder to bring down uh, inflation using rates. My idea there, or my thought there, is that people will just have to be kind of patient a little bit. And we're behind the US on this. We're going to stay behind for some time. It, I'd rather this came down kind of gradually rather than in a rush and I don't want to say trigger a recession, but effectively just... Uh, hammered a load of people in the in the bank balances thing is it's quite easy for somebody who's paid multiple hundreds of thousands of pounds a year to get pissy about wages going up isn't it do you know what i mean about the smaller wage going up. i mean if he says oh I, well, I didn't take a pay rise well that's all right you get paid a quarter of a million pound a year you have very little problems you know the people who are on 20 25 30 000 pound a year what does he want? Infinite struggle? I just, I don't understand how somebody, you know, if, if he really wanted to say, uh, you know, I I think, um, you know, wage, wage increases and, and, and that is a problem, then why doesn't he drop his salary to £25,000 a year? You know what I mean? And see how he gets on uh, in, in this kind of environment. And the answer to that is because he's a knobhead. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, <laughs> and he's talking out of both sides of his face. So I, look, I have no problem with wage increases. I've never, ever been on the side of uh, of people not getting wage increases because um, the the opposite to that is poverty. And that's ridiculous in a, in a nation like the UK. So um, I don't know, Steve. I, I, I'm disillusioned. With, I've been disillusioned with the Bank of England for quite a long time i i said to you i was i was much more in favor of uh, of previous people uh mark carney uh even though somehow he managed to get linked into being sort of in between george soros and the devil at one point but i was much more in favor of mark carney as a steward of the uk economy than i am andrew bailey and his his cronies um especially going against uh the advice of the uh lead economists during covid uh and 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 such like and, and continued onwards i think actually the lead economist i can't remember his name for the life of me but he has left now um and he should leave as well if he sat there going i'm the chief economist here is my advice and they say sorry we're going to do the opposite um then you deserve to you know you, you don't get any leeway to complain about the ramifications of your actions they they did far too much qe not enough qt they they left the taps on for far too long and they were suffering the consequences because of their poor actions and it's got nothing to do with us or a little wage increase or or the unions trying to make the doctors and the nurses and the firefighters get a decent pay rise. It's got nothing to do with any of that, Steve. It's got all to do with uh, the Bank of England's failure and the sooner people realise that, the better. The doctor pay rise thing, uh, at the bottom of the article that we both looked at from The Guardian was was really interesting to me. There's a lot of strikes going on there over... The government has agreed to what it considers to be a reasonable pay rise of nine point something, uh, I think, percent. Um, call it that, which is, of course, higher than either 6.8% or 7.9% in inflation terms. The union is pointing out that, yeah, that is higher than this year's inflation. But we've been seeing inflation for quite a long time. And we haven't been seeing any pay rises. So compared to back when this sort of started with pay freezes, they reckon they're about 35% behind from what I saw of it. And they're looking for a 35% uh, wage increase. Will they get 35? I oh, I doubt it. I can't see anyone agreeing to that. But there's a lot of room is my main kind of observation between 9% and 35%. It looks to me like there's, there's quite a lot of um, uh, middle ground to find on that, which doesn't make me optimistic for this resolving suit. No, but it's a standard negotiation tactic, this isn't it? I do think the numbers involved are a little bit high. Um, mm. But you, you, if you go down to, uh, you, you sit down to uh, a meeting wanting a 10% pay rise and your starting offer is I want a 10% pay rise, then you ain't going to walk away with a 10% pay rise. You're going to get offered five or six. Now, agree again that staying, I want a 35% pay rise, that's quite likely to like make somebody look at you and go, come on. Give me a real offer, you know what I mean? But somewhere in the middle between 9 and 35, Steve, is a good quality pay rise that the junior doctors will accept. Now, I don't understand why, as a nation, we basically want our healthcare service uh, ran, on its, uh, ran on its knees like this, where people are striking left, right and centre just because they feel like they, they, they deserve a decent pay rise. I think the amount of time we've wasted on strikes, uh, cutting back... Um, cutting back operations, admin, all the other crap that comes with strikes. I think we should just find, you know, sit down on the table. Don't let these people leave until they've come to an agreement. And don't let them eat. Don't let them drink. Don't let them stretch the legs, mate. Uh, just 
get to an agreement, get it sorted, and, and let's crack on, because I feel like this has just been a massive waste of everyone's time. The time thing is where I was going with that. Yeah, I get the idea that if you um, pitch up asking for 15 or something, you'll end up somewhere near a 12. Uh, but at least I can see with a, if one side's at 15 and one side's at 9, we end up at 12. I think both of them know we end up at 12 sort of sooner rather than later. 35 and 9 feels to me like it has a lot of dragging out to, to go here. And I wonder, that does sort of worry me a little bit, partly from a kind of UK economy perspective and partly just from a general kind of health and health services perspective. This makes me you know, kind of concerned, I think, with but, that having some way to go. Yeah, but this is the thing, isn't it? So the government are saying, oh, well, we're, we're you know, they're all little fat little thatcherites aren't they so they're all oh, we'll, we'll strong arm the unions by saying it's nine percent or bust well unfortunately bust isn't an option is it mm. <laughs> with, with people's lives and livelihoods so um they need to just they need to just sort it out Steve. i don't i just don't I, honestly i don't understand like i i say it all the time to um the the junior he comes over and he's saying oh we're 100 quid short on this job you know what i mean and he doesn't mean 100 quid we're going to lose 100 quid if it goes he means that you know, the margin might be 30% rather than 31%. And I was, you say to him, like, go, literally, go find, you've got 10 minutes to go and find any money you can find in the job. But if you can't find it in 10 minutes, it's not worth your time. Do you know what I mean? You just sign it off, accept it was an error, and uh, and send it down. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's generally how I feel about this. I obviously know we're talking about much bigger numbers here, but there, there must come a point where the government has to turn around and say, this is just a massive waste of everyone. So we are literally wasting so much time wrangling about what might only end up being another 5 or 6% on the offer. Just get it done. Mm. Last general election was uh, 12th of December 2019. Will we still be running for the next one, do you think? Probably. Um, we're... It would be around 2025 if it's not called sooner. I can't imagine it's going to run to that point, but um, I I don't know. I suspect it can't. Uh, I, I feel like the government's not going to want that to happen any sooner, so we'll see. I, I, I Look, I think the Tories are, are clinging on to power at the moment, and they're looking to drag this out as long as possible to try and put some distance between uh, the way Boris did it and the way Rishi did it. The unfortunate thing is that while Rishi has... I think he's generally improved some of the polling uh, on him. It's it's not been enough. I would imagine they're going to want to try and let this run as long as possible, so at least they don't all lose their jobs, which huh. you know would have happened uh, if they'd have, if they'd have called it six or seven months ago. Uh, there would have been a hell of a lot of Tories out of seat. I think there's probably less Tories out of seat now than there was, but um, I think they're going to try and run this all the way to the end, Steve. So I, I'm the opposite to you. I think this will be called at the very last minute, and I still think it's Labour's to lose and Labour are well capable of losing this but I mean Keir at the moment is, is funny really because people saying he's non-committal and he's non-committal because he's literally just trying not to not to not to like alienate any voter so it's like what are your thoughts on this Keir well I like both sides of the argument and, you know what I mean and that's exactly what it is he's literally not giving us a single opinion yet but He's doing that because I think he's acutely aware of Labour's ability to uh, take a winning lead and then just stamp all over it. Yeah, I agree with pretty much all that last. Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. So the sucker's going up. But, um, let's push our way on for the moment then, shall we? So enough about pessimism in the UK. Let's talk about... Oh, we've got to get to Adyen, I think. Uh, next, let's go to Europe. What's let's happened just there, Steve? Cross, cross the channel for some pessimism. Well, apparently, yeah. Uh, okay, Steve. So, um, so Adyen reported um, midweek. This is one of my stocks. It's not, it's not one of my larger holdings, but I think it probably was in my top... 10 or 12 uh, before uh, before report but <laughs> so a big ouch steve i've got an average price of about 1250 and we're still uh at, <laughs> we're still under that after adyen fell about 40% on the reporting day and it's fallen quite a bit more since steve i think the last i saw it was under 900 euros so 872 sure. is what i'm looking yeah. at here uh, but anyway here are the figures see what you think 
Uh, processed volume was up 23%, uh, digital up 23%, unified commerce up 36%, platforms was plus 3%, point of sale was up 49%, and churn less than 1%. So all looking pretty healthy in terms of the the, the, the sort of top se- uh, segments. Revenue was up 21%, and that was in EMEA plus 20, North America plus 23, APAC plus 31, Latin America plus 13. EBITDA, Steve, is where it starts to get a little spotty. Uh, that was actually down 10 percentage points, so margin fell uh, from uh, – sorry, EBITDA was minus 10% on last year. Sorry, margin fell from 59 to 43%. Uh, EPS was uh, 907, which uh, analysts wanted 909, um, so a little miss there, but nothing too exciting. Free cash flow, Steve, was down 20%, and operating expenses was up 66%. So I think you probably see straight off the bat here that there's been a pretty large drop in profitability at Agen, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and go over that in a little bit, but... So I had a I had a quick look around, Steve, and S and P Global they're expecting Adyen to return to about one point eight billion in free cash flow in twenty twenty five. So that's twenty five times twenty twenty five free cash flow uh, using uh, using that kind of estimate and that kind of price that we're at today, or about twenty one and a half times if you use enterprise value because they've got about six billion of cash on the balance sheet, but still not massively cheap, Steve, when you're going that far ahead. Um, so the problem for me here is that Adyen said uh, last year when, when growth started to decelerate a little bit that they thought they would pretty much grow at 25% for the foreseeable future. And they've actually fallen at the first hurdle. Um, so when a customer tells uh, investors that, you know, that you know we've been growing in the 40s and the 50%, but we're now going to grow in the 25%, um, you know, you're expecting a gradual decline towards that figure. And and to be honest with you, that's where I've been basing my figures on. But when you actually half this growth this early on, uh, the price gets a little bit stickier. But I don't think this growth rate that we're experiencing today is actually here to stay. I think this is another example of growth pulled forward. And I think that the growth would re-accelerate um, from here to somewhere uh, in between where it was before. So the same headwinds that are affecting things like AWS and Azure, I think are affecting the payment space in Agile. And I do believe that these headwinds will ease as the uh, economy normalizes and these new rates sort of settle in a little bit. So one of the things I've noted when I've covered Agile before is that they didn't do really any hiring during the pandemic. And the reason they didn't do that is because uh, it was really, really competitive in the tech space. There wasn't a lot of people uh, around, and that increased the price of tech hires uh, quite considerably. But since the pandemic, they've been hiring really aggressively. If you look at that full-time employee headcount, Steve, it's been uh, it's been increasing fairly rapidly. And that explains the costs and this collapse in EBITDA margin. Uh, it looks like the pre-pandemic rates were essentially artificially inflated so far. So uh, Agent's growth hasn't really justified the investment cost at the moment, but that's not to say that it won't in the future, Steve. This is a company that is definitely investing for the future. Uh, Here's a little snippet I took out of the investor letter. So they said, uh, we know that growth will not always be linear. And while we saw net revenue growth decelerate in half one, uh, we did not see any substantial developments that structurally change our medium to long-term opportunity. In addition, we anticipate our business model's high operating leverage to kick in as we move out of this accelerated investment phase into 2024. So this is a company, Steve, that's definitely focused on long-term future. Uh, I think we're just in a pretty spotty period for the payment space. I mean, everybody invested in the payment space has been a big loser uh, in the uh, in the last couple of years. So look, Adyen's got six billion of cash and doesn't make acquisitions. So at some point, they're going to have to give us a plan for what they want to do with that cash. Uh, I'm yet to hear really what that plan is, but it is becoming a big old cash pile and uh, it is a significant portion of Adyen and I, I don't really see why they, they really want to sit on it. Um, but yeah, I've got a little bit to finish you off, Steve. Uh, Terry Smith said Adyen would be his number one purchase last year if it had a blip. you think this is Smudge's chance to get in? Ah, interesting. Yeah, I do. I would stick out there as a kind of bold prediction. Let's start with your last thing then. Um, I would, yeah, I'll put out there as a prediction that whenever the next Fundsmith or or whatever the relevant thing, uh, 13F is, that comes out, I think you will see Adyen in there um, somewhere. I don't know what will be sold to make way for it. I don't know um, how much it will kind of take up. But I think Terry Smith will buy Adyen uh, on this. 
working backwards through your um, points here, the thing about cash piling up, I saw a headline from Bloomberg, and since I don't have a Bloomberg subscription, I didn't read the story about it, that their co-CEO was ruling out uh, buybacks with their cash pile for a moment, because it is a very natural thought that says, yeah, they've got a lot of cash and they don't make acquisitions. And now the stock looks cheap. Um, it, things appear to be kind of aligning quite nicely to go doing that. Uh, the brief preview that I saw of that article, um, if anyone wants to read the full thing and tell me what's in it, please go ahead, uh, said something along the lines of, look, he said, we're building a business here. We're not in the process of returning cash at the moment. We are looking for things to do in terms of building out mostly our team. The general message from management looked to me like it was, yes, we are picking up costs in the short term. We are picking up costs in terms of building out our uh, team, but we think this will pay off, um, as you say, once we get out of this, what they called accelerated uh, investment cycle um, or something or accelerated growth cycle. So I was interested in the fact that they hadn't been hiring. Other fintechs, of course, had. Stripe had. PayPal had. Stripe and PayPal are currently firing people all over the place because they grew to try and expand into their uh, what they saw as opportunity. And now that, that things are slowing down a bit, they are busy firing people again. Uh, it gives Agin a chance, I guess, to go uh, picking things up. There's something good about being like counter-cyclical of being, well, look, I'm not going to hire everybody now when everyone's fighting over them and you have to probably pay them a lot more as a result. Let's go and talk to them once they don't have a job um, because PayPal has decided we cannot run at this level of costs in this kind of environment. So this, you know, PayPal, by the way, is another stock that's having a rotten time with things. Um, Stripe is not publicly traded, at least I don't think anyway. But, but slashed its valuation. Mm. That's checkout.com, real big slashes. Yeah. So it, it looks to me like like there's a lot going on in this sector generally. And okay, Agin is not immune to it. But but you, uh, yeah, the kind of, the kind of non-financial stuff uh, that you talked about in the beginning all seems to be going in the right direction, right? The business is, as it were, growing. It's not growing profitably yet. Um, but I wonder whether there's a real opportunity here for someone who's kind of prepared to be patient. It's, it's PE looks high, but it's had a slow earnings cycle. And I wonder whether that might just be this might be a stock that is, in fact, cheaper than it looks uh, is the way I would be tempted to try and put this, I guess. Yeah, so look, what you're looking at is overhiring. So uh, mm. Adyen is now overhiring because it anticipates that the the you know the the, the prize at the end of the road is bigger, um, and it needs the people to get there. So when when just to give people figures, if they if they do plug it into a model, when Adyen didn't didn't overhire, its EBITDA margins are between seventy two and seventy five, and its cash conversion is about seventy seven percent free cash flow from EBITDA. So you end up with a lot more interesting figures, a lot quicker. But the problem now is you're facing, you know, if you want to run those numbers, if you think Adyen can grow to those, back to those numbers, then then plug those numbers in. The problem is, is your EBITDA margin at the moment is 43%. Uh, so that's a big difference. But obviously that is because of more, you know, more boots on the ground, more sales staff, more tech staff, uh, more hiring staff. But um just because I, I realized we didn't really do this at the beginning. So Adyen is essentially a, a full stack uh, payment processor. Mm. I guess PayPal is a, is, a, is a decent example of an aspect of it. But if you know Stripe or Checkout.com, I think it's Checkout.com. I think it might just be called Checkout now. Uh, they're alternatives to it. So Adyen's uh, a premium product. So it, it, it no bones about it. It is more expensive than using Stripe or more expensive than using something like Checkout.com. Uh, but it is specifically for um, companies that have really complex payment systems, maybe complex multinational, multi-currency payment systems. It excels in getting um, better authorization rates than than all of its competitors. Um, and that that is where, you know, that is where, where Adyen wins out and that's where it gets the vast majority of its business. So in a period where we're thinking big companies are tightening the belts to keep their earnings strong, stop spending on tech maybe stop spending so frivolously uh, frivolously uh you're seeing that in all of your data center figures and your tech figures that are coming through even your cybersecurity figures that are coming through are looking light in places it is only natural that the payment providers will you know will experience the same spend people who were planning on doing you know five year swaps to agen who then realized in the pandemic that that had to be a five minute swap to agen that sales cycle has lengthened 
you know, innumerably, innumerably now back out maybe to two, three, four, five year cycles. So it is an example of growth pulled forward, but it's not a uh, not an example of um, you know growth finished. Is is my uh, my interpretation of it? And I, on Twitter, all the usual suspects, Steve, and all the ones we won't name, were out with their rearview mirrors. I mean, literally, like rearview mirrors must have been sold out on Thursday because <laughs> they were all like, "Oh, I told you this would happen." It had a PE of eighty eight thousand, and oh, that's what happens when companies with PEs of it. And you just think to yourself, like, you know, these guys are inve- invested in like all of the money in dot and, and stuff like that and you think like, you're just not going to get the kind of and the worst thing is is that some of them are putting out like you know this how here's how my portfolio is doing this month and they're halfway to the S&P which is like you know you're wasting my time here um so yeah I don't know Steve I I I, I think this is by what well, is a buy for me at the moment I've bought it uh, although I bought it and it's fallen another 18% since I bought it um but uh something now Steve that I think I could accumulate a much bigger position in Interesting. That was where I was going on this. I mean, you said uh, it excels for a certain kind of client. They have some big clients, uh, Adjun, that they've been getting themselves into kind of quietly. Every time I go into a shop and I see an Adjun terminal thing, I think of you, but that's really only the kind of, uh, that's a very small part of what goes on here, uh, basically. So I looked, they have Netflix, Meta, Microsoft, Spotify, who run their payments through Adjun now one way or another. That's they are getting themselves dug in nicely. And your point about growth pulled forward, but growth finished is kind of what management's telling you, right? Rather than 50% growth, we're now looking for 25% growth. Maybe it could have been a steady 35 uh, for the next however many years, but some of that's come forward. Okay, now we're going down to 25 in that case, but not finished because 25% growth is still still pretty impressive growth, uh, to be honest, for something that isn't. Uh, okay, it's it's still a decent size, but um, it's 25 is a number a lot of companies would take. You take 25% growth from most things and come back in three years and see where you are after that, I think. Um, it's This is kind of like your old proverb of we'll see uh, type uh, things on this one. Yeah, it is. This is definitely a we'll see, I think. Uh, the key to remember, Steve, that uh, people like looking at 25% growth and thinking that that that's not great that's essentially what salesforce has grown at for 20 years straight if adjun mm-hmm. grows at 25 you know 20 to 25% for 20 years straight Steve it's going to be worth a hell of a lot more than it is today i i missed the point on i didn't have time to look at twitter and see people's kind of rear view uh mirrors and they, they, of course they have fairly fairly short memories as well as very good rearview mirrors. It's an interesting combination to have uh, with these. But let's say no more about that for the moment, unless you've got anything else to add on um, well, Adyen. It, most most of the rearview mirror investors were investing in Barber at $200, and I'm fairly certain it's still about half of that, Steve, after a good run. So uh, rearview mirrors uh, were, were fully sold out on Thursday, but I'd expect a, a restocking soon for the next company. Mm. Oh, well, uh, let's see how we go. I'll talk about something for a bit then that... Um, I don't think many people on Twitter or anywhere else are that interested in, but I think they maybe should be more interested than they are. So Admiral also reported uh, earnings this week. And I guess if we have a sort of theme, Steve, um, you would go with something like uh, Adyens were not bad results, but the market didn't like them very much. Um, Admirals kind of don't look very good. The market does like them very much. Uh, or, or quite a bit. Stock went up 5%. And this is a FTSE 100 stock, right? They don't do that very often. Uh, and it's more or less held there. This was on Wednesday that these guys reported before opening. Uh, went up 5%-ish and has pretty much held there to the end of the week. A little bit of wiggling around, but we're pretty much finishing about 5 or so percent up since Wednesday. So uh, what's been going on here? Admiral, of course, is a car insurance company. And if you look at the BBC's headline, what you will see is large numbers of customers have left, uh, which is I don't know. Maybe the reason the stock's going up? Nope, that can't be it. Uh, But on the face of it, that's not good. You want customers, you want premiums in, and so on and so forth. I'll come back to why that's not a big problem in a moment for them. Here's the kind of headline news, I guess. Revenues are up 21%. Pre-tax profits are up 4%. Earnings per share were down 5%. Um, So, okay. What's going on beneath the surface then uh, in that case? Admiral does car insurance in three different geographies. It has the UK, it has Europe, and it has the US. And the UK makes up uh, more than 100% of its profitability, which is to say the other two lose money, and is the vast majority of its operations full stop. So let's focus our attention there for the moment, because I think that's the only thing really worth paying attention to at the moment. Tell me in the comments if I'm wrong. 
So there's two things that Admiral does uh, as a car insurer. Number one, it underwrites car insurance policies. So you give them some money, they pay out on your claims if you have any. If you don't have any, they keep all your money. If you do have some, they go and sort out whatever it is that needs sorting out for you. And obviously, they try and charge you. Well, ideally, they would like to charge you way more than they're likely to ever pay out uh, across a whole bunch of uh, claims, right? So they'll have, I don't know, thousands and uh, maybe millions uh, of car insurance policies, ideally. And they will want the amount they get paid for all of them to ideally be higher than the amount they have to pay out for all of them, which isn't to say they're going to win on every single policy, but over a a collection, they'll do well. Or that's the the idea. uh, In addition to that, of course, as anyone who spent any time thinking about Berkshire Hathaway knows, that means you get a load of cash that you have given to you, and then you have to sit there with it and do something. And you try and get some investment income off of that cash. Uh, and that's uh, an attractive kind of part of the business for somewhere like uh, Berkshire, which has so much float knocking around. It's used to buy a bunch of businesses, which generate even more cash and they generate even more business and so on. And on goes the, the snowball effect. Admiral isn't quite like that, but it works in broadly the same way. So let's start with the stuff about underwriting then. Um, basically, in fact, here's what happened at both levels. Underwriting in the UK went down by 9 million in terms of profitability, which is a 4% or so uh, decline. Investment income was up by 30 million. Neither of these is a massive surprise, I don't think. Uh, 4% decline is mostly due, as far as I can tell, to inflation, which is not good for car insurance companies. It makes claims more expensive to try and fix. Uh, if uh, the price of secondhand cars goes up, replacements are more expensive, repairs are more expensive. Everything is basically more expensive, which means that your profits generally get cut into here unless you can raise your premiums quite sharply. Pin that to the thought about customers leaving uh, for a second. So what you're seeing there is um, a solidly profitable still operation uh, that is less profitable than it once was. So insurers like talking about this thing called the combined ratio, which is basically your gross written premium, i.e. all the money you get in from premiums, minus the stuff you pay out and your uh, basically costs of running your operation. In other words, it's an inverted operating margin. Um, and I don't know why they don't just call it an operating margin. I assume it's slightly different somehow, but I'm not sure why they have it inverted, but they do. So your combined ratio means that 100 is break even and lower is better. So if your costs and payouts exactly match the amount you take in, your gross, your combined ratio is 100. If you're slightly profitable, you're at 90-something, so on and so forth. Admiral's combined ratio increased, which is bad. It went from 87% to 89%, uh, which means still solidly profitable, um, but less profitable than it was a year ago. Inflation weighing on that a little bit. So, So negative on the underwriting side, but in a tough environment, I'll come back to why I think that might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, I mean, it's bad, but it's not bad compared to others. Investment income, you'd expect that to be higher. Interest rates are higher. You buy a bond there, you get a better return off it. So you'd expect to see uh, more coming in 30 million wise. That's pretty straightforward here. Um, Looking at the back to that combined ratio then for the moment and what I think is going on here. So here are a couple of things to think about. And here's a thing that I think got missed on a different podcast that I was looking about. If your combined ratio is 100, that means you break even on your underwriting. It doesn't mean your business isn't profitable because you still have all your investment income that comes from investing stuff. Even if, in fact, your uh, operation, your underwriting uh, comes out at 101% combined operating ratio doesn't mean you're unprofitable. And in fact, it might be worth it to you. It basically means you are paying away 1% to get your float in if you're at 101. But if you're investing your float at uh, 4%, something like that, you are still doing better than if you had a smaller float, but at 100, because you are still making money on all those things. Nonetheless, lower is better. Um, And I think one of the things that get lost here is you see combined ratio over 100 and think, well, this can't be making any money then. It is. It's just not making as much money as it would if it got the thing for free. Admiral's combined ratio is interesting thing to follow over the last decade. So compare it to the industry. Here's what's happened over the last 10 years, year by year. I'll read them out like football scores for you. 2013, industry 100, Admiral 83. 2014, industry 101, Admiral 83. 2015, industry 104, Admiral 81. 2016, industry 109, Admiral 91. 2017, industry 97, Admiral 80. 2018, Industry 94, Admiral 82, 2019, 101 to 80, 
2020, 91 to 69. 2021, 97 to 73, and 2022, 106 to 102. In other words, most of the time, this industry is not making any money underwriting. Uh, admirable. admirable is. Hey, uh, admirable. It is admirable. Maybe they just misspelt their name uh, and then had to come up with that ridiculous mascot. But um, there's a few things there. So one, most of the time, this industry is not making any money out of underwriting. Admiral is. Um, because most of the time that industry is up and around 100, Admiral is comfortably below it. Second is it's comfortably outperforming this industry. Why is it doing that? Answer is it has better data. Uh, It has these boxes that you put in people's cars, and one of the things you're seeing in the States, and if you listen to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting repeatedly, all you hear is, why are we not as good at progressive? Why didn't we start doing this telemetry thing? They are kicking us up and down the board here at GEICO. Uh, and Buffett says things that are fairly evasive, to be honest. But increasingly, they have started accepting we are losing. And we are losing because we did not get this um, telemetry thing. And we didn't see it coming. Well, we saw it coming. We didn't appreciate it as a threat properly. Admiral in the UK is miles ahead of its field in that. That's why its stuff is better. That's also why, just to round this off, I think it's losing customers. Because if it thinks that premiums are not matched correctly, it's going to let customers go or not charge lower. What Admiral is trying to tell you, I think, is that there's going to be a lot of insurers struggling to make any money because they're offering out things too cheap, at least according to our data and tech stack uh, and info that we have. So we'll let them go. And if that means customers leave, well, they can go bust some other insurer. We can't see how it's worth it to offer these at this price. Someone else can do it if they want. But we're going to take business that we think is is going to be matched pretty accurately with a risk reward for us. And I think historically, uh, over the last decade, they've done a pretty good job of that. Their combined ratio is strong. So I guess in summary here, underwriting is taking a step back, but it's taken less of a step back than it might have in this kind of environment. It's still strongly well ahead of its field, um, and it's now getting better investment income. I thought this was a good report. I think this is a good company. I would look very seriously at buying this if I had any cash. My nine quid from Apple might be finding a home here. It is impressive just looking down that that list of just how good they are at underwriting, and I'd never even thought I would bother looking at this. So uh, that is impressive, especially when you think I think of uh, admirable admiral as uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's going to be stuck in my head now as um, as a car insurance company, and straight away I think right that's a commodity. But evidently there is um, you know there is a talent to to underwriting car insurance that maybe that I didn't appreciate before today. One of the things I wasn't so impressed with, Steve, is just looking down this list of this diversification strategy doesn't appear to be working as well. I mean, I'm looking at this lending business here, Admiral Money Gross Loans, up 31% to $1.03 billion, Steve. And in this environment, when a loan's going out, well, what, 8 9 10 probably up to 20%, they posted a pre-tax profit of $2.7 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's only i mean that's up a lot it's it's up 24 because they only managed 200 grand the year before so on that was on 700 million by the looks of it so uh yeah that's that's not looking well that looks like busy full kind of work to me but maybe they can make uh you know they can make something of that go on yeah they do like doing a lot of stuff i mean i i zoomed in on the uk insurance thing and i said that was the most important thing and i think that's right but but they do enjoy kind of messing around in other areas that they um, I think would be well advised to, well, not too, not too much energy behind here uh, with their kind of, I guess, other bets arm or whatever we want to call that. Yeah, and, and there's a there's a huge uh, share issue here as well to to staff as well, which is is kind of interesting. Mm. You don't you don't see this happen. I like the fact that it's uh, Wales uh, only FTSE 100 company, Steve. It likes to uh, remind you at the top because I think it's Cardiff based. Uh, but yeah, they're giving eighteen hundred. Yeah, eighteen hundred quid worth of free shares to ten thousand staff members, apparently, at Admiral. So that's that's quite a chunk of cash that's due to to give out to your staff. Um, mm, I wonder if that's for a FTSE one hundred thing. I know. I wonder what Rishi Sunak thinks of that. Um, he'll probably be in Wales soon, letting us know what he thinks. But um, yeah, interesting, Steve. It looks like a really um pretty interesting business you found here. Probably one of those good businesses hiding in plain sight, maybe. Maybe. Um, I feel like it, it kind of hides in plain sight. You have to dig a little bit. Uh, as I say, when I heard other podcasts talking about this, they struggled to see how it was making any money at all um, because they were looking at it last year, I think, where it had a, a combined ratio of 102. 
Um, 102 is actually not great if you think last year's interest rates were really, really low or something. But you take 102. I mean, if someone said, look, I'll give you a big pile of money. You pay me 2% on it and you can go and invest it where you like. Um, that wouldn't be too hard to make money off a spread on that. Even now, uh, just by whacking it into bonds, you get better than 2%. Um, you need to keep enough around to make sure that no one suddenly had a big accident and called you on it. But I think they're, yeah, I think they might be better than people think. Well, there's two schools of thought, isn't it? When rates are this high with insurance, there's people who say like, look, we'll be, you know, we'll focus on underwriting quality and getting the kind of business we want and make a little bit of money from the underwriting and a little bit of money from the, the bonds. And they'll, they'll be the people who say, we will underwrite everything. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter what we have. We will just have the biggest cash. It doesn't matter if this guy's crashed 12 times in the last five minutes, we will have his money and we will try and make money from the bonds and just hope he doesn't crash. It's volume versus quality, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit of what you like. Yep, pretty much. Um, okay, that's that's plenty enough talking about UK insurance companies. Let's talk about something else, Steve. Uh, how's Tencent been going? Uh, actually, better than you might think, Steve. I don't know if this is one that you follow a little bit uh, or not, but <clears throat> I've done all the figures, Steve, and I haven't had a chance to convert them back. So they're all going to be in Renminbi, which I think is how you pronounce it. Um, so just to help you out, Steve, you divide them by nine to get to GBP, roughly, and you divide right. them by divide them by seven to get to USD. So get your calculators out, everybody. Um, so ten cent split. Uh, into about five segments, really. So it's it's a gaming division, a finance division, social networks, advertising, and other. And here's how they did. Gaming was up five uh, percent to forty four point five billion. Social networks was up two percent to twenty nine point seven billion. I've put percent. Um, advertising was up thirty four percent, Steve, to twenty five billion. Finance was up 15% to 48.6 billion, and other, whatever that is, was down 7% to 1.4 billion. So collectively, revenue came in at 142.9 billion. That's up 11% year on year. This was actually a 2.5 billion miss on expectations, but market didn't seem to care on the day. It was up about 5%. Uh, Tencent, Steve, is an efficient, strong margin business. So $27 billion of this made its way to the bottom line. That's about an 18% net margin, improving slightly year over year. And that's because Tencent spent a lot on R&D this year, Steve, about $16 billion on R&D, uh, about $9.5 billion on G&A, and about $8.3 billion on sales and marketing. So quite a hefty spend, really. There's some of that you could probably factor back in uh, if uh, Tencent was being a more efficient business than it already is. Uh, in terms of their, their main programs, WeChat was up 2% year on year. It's got uh, 1.327 billion uh, monthly active users. QQ has 571 million monthly active users. That was flat. And mini programs uh, was 1.1 billion uh, monthly active users, up a little bit as well. What was really jumping out to me, Steve, I don't know if it was the same with you, was that advertising revenue. We're not used to seeing, especially in recent uh, advertising jumping like that uh, internationally. I would say advertising is still struggling. Tencent seems to have found something with their new sort of video slash YouTube clone that seems to have really sort of ticked a box with the market. Uh, Other than that, Tencent hinted at a more normalized regulatory environment coming for their gaming sector, Steve. So for those that don't know, China essentially banned Tencent from releasing new games and has put maximum play times uh, on children. I think they get a couple of hours, maybe a couple of hours a week, might be a couple of hours a day, I can't remember. But they basically restricted the amount of time that children can play games, uh, which has really hindered Tencent's growth uh, in that area. And it is one of Tencent's biggest biggest divisions as well but tencent actually said that they believe that they're heading towards the end of that regulatory environment so maybe we might see gaming improve a little bit uh, not just internationally but domestically as well anything in there steve is, is tencent one that one that you like i know we've spoke about china before as being you know one of those ones where we think the best action is just to play the hits and tencent is certainly one of the hits yeah and it's an otc traded hit as well right mm. so it's um if you think there's uh, a kind of twofold risk with the adr thing one is that they might be removed from u.s exchanges and the other is that they uh, might be banned by the chinese government uh, or, or investigated by the chinese government well, one of those is an issue for Tencent. The other one isn't. It's hard to delist something that trades OTC. 
Yeah, and you can hold it in an ICER as well, though, because mm-hmm. it is, it is. Um, I think it's on the Shanghai Exchange as well, which is a, a recognized exchange. So, you know, a, a Chinese stock that you can hold in an ICER. Yeah, so it's historically been quite a bit of confusion over that. The thing that jumped out at me wasn't actually either the gaming thing or the ad thing. Um, uh, Steve, just say the numbers again for finance for me there. I was scribbling them down as you went, but on a, on a, about 140-something of revenue, you said they were where, sorry? Yes, their biggest department, $48.6 billion, up 15%. I misheard you when you said the up amount, because I thought uh, I wrote down the same number twice. I wrote down 48.6 and thought, hang on, that's up 40-odd percent. Uh, Why are we not talking about this thing? What the hell has happened there? Um, Yeah, I saw it was their biggest department. Okay, in that case, the ad thing does stick out to me. That is interesting, uh, because that's their fastest growing thing. It's their smallest segment at the moment, but, but look, this is a thing where things are really starting to to kind of come almost into equilibrium with each other a little bit right you've got these kind of let's say four uh bits for the moment leave aside other because um we'll worry about other another day for the moment but if it's if you think about these four things you have a range of between sort of 49 billion and 27 billion these are all significantly sized uh things where if if you feel having more things kind of helps your diversity or, or spreads out risk across different areas. Think the opposite of Google, uh, for instance. This looks encouraging from that kind of uh, side as well to me. That part of the thinking here that, look, this just builds out kind of uh, giant after giant, as it were. That's essentially it for me. Yeah, they have the best um, social uh, social network. And because of the way China sort of, um, the way their app system runs is, uh, WeChat in China is more like Android or Apple's ecosystem than being like, you know, like a WhatsApp clone or, or something like that. So it is more sort of all-encompassing. You can do a hell of a lot more in, in WeChat than you, you can in, in things like WhatsApp. This is why uh, PayPal and even WhatsApp to some degree uh, have all talked about trying to head towards the super app kind of thing. It's one of the things that China does way better than uh, than international countries so um that's the thing about tencent they have this captive network that they can you know push new products onto uh, and because people trust the brand and trust the network because of the way tencent looks after its uh, uh after its users like for instance you, you're not getting like facebook bombarded every two or three scrolls with advertisement i think you're limited to just two advertisements a day uh, on something like um, uh, on WeChat. So what they're doing here is essentially um, they've built up this huge trust base with their users and then slowly brought in things that you, you pay for or things that they can get revenue from. And that seems to have really, really caught on with, with their people. And I mean, you can see that from the figures, Steve. This is decent growth across the board here. Advertising growing at 34%. It's 25 billion, Steve. 34% uh, at 25 billion is, you know, has not to be sniffed at. If it continues to grow uh, at that kind of rate, you, you know, you've got a new leading segment uh, um, at Tencent before long. Um, so, yeah, I guess you are right. Back to your original statement. Tencent something that could just continuously seem to spin out bangers. Yeah. And when you think about that kind of growth, I wonder whether it's easy to think about that kind of growth by converting it back to UK monies here, right? So, we're talking about 25 billion here and how fast can you grow 25 billion? Well, divide that number by seven to get you somewhere between three and four and then think how fast can you grow three or four billion in terms of pounds. That to me doesn't seem like such a, a big deal, right? It's the same thing. But I wonder whether maybe I look at these 25 billions and 44 billions and stuff and think, gosh, that's big and look at that size and, and then have the kind of size related worries about growth. But I'm in my head not doing that conversion back that you were uh, offering me there, which is, as you pointed out at the beginning, so important to do, right? Because you need to know what these numbers you're actually talking about are. 25 billion renminbi uh, is quite different to 25 billion pounds or dollars or uh, whatever. Sorry, you said divide by nine to get to pounds, didn't you? Uh, My fault. Seven for dollars. Yeah. Yeah, So actually, I'm looking at just under three. uh, In that case, then, so dividing it by uh, three, I get to two and quite a bit, and that. I, uh, my instinct is that when we talk about two billion dollar, uh, two billion pound, sorry, uh, companies or between two and three billion, we tend to think there's growth in front of them. We don't tend to think they are 
uh, gosh, how's the growth going to come from here? At least if we think there's a market available, we think there you know, could be, right? It's not uh, just a law of large numbers thing getting in the way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and that's basically what I see about the whole Tencent brand. I think, you know, we're looking at gaming being artificially held back. I think gaming could um, could grow at a decent rate if it is allowed to. You add gaming, getting back to decent growth, to advertising growing well and to finance growing well, Steve. Um, forget about the social network. For now, that can, that can trundle along and be sort of a cash cow for them. You've got a company here growing pretty, pretty strongly, Steve, and I don't really see the major competition here where that's going to come and uh, and wipe them out no very hard to see how something comes along and wipes these guys out and when you think about that growth especially in uh, a country the size of china that looks kind of encouraging i take your point about the wechat thing i've only been to china once i was there for about a week or so a few years ago and wechat when i uh, was very much the thing that basically everything happened through and it both is and is not WhatsApp. Um, it looks like WhatsApp. It feels like WhatsApp in the way that a lot of China Chinese clones of, of Western things look and feel like the things they are clones of. It's it's not hard to notice a similarity to WhatsApp. And at that Team level, green, isn't people it? Are, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's basically identical in that regard. But then you look at it and you just think, I've seen the future of WhatsApp uh, here. This is how things are going to happen. And there are reasons it's not quite as straightforward to get that to happen in uh, the Western world. But I do think that those are kind of rolling off a little bit. So one is that China was never a big credit card country. They basically bypassed um, cards and went from paying in cash to paying on phones. Uh, and therefore, it's pretty near impossible now to pay for anything, at least where I was, without a phone um, and without either Alipay or WeChat, mostly WeChat. Uh, to be honest there so so they have a real stranglehold on that that's that's very very difficult to appreciate i think unless you've seen it final thought for me on this company when you present their kind of spending and work out where they've been sending cash out to you abbreviate gna and you say they spent this much on gna and they spent this much on r&d and you don't abbreviate sales and marketing no no i don't know why i do that huh interesting um if you're interested in uh, sensent and the chinese's snm spend uh, then do, do let us know and we'll get Steve to talk about it in the future. Uh, anything else on this one, Steve? No, that's it. Cool. In that case, that was our show. We've made it through an hour, Mark, with mostly chatting about cricket again. Join us next week when I'll be talking about things that are growing in my garden. See you then.